Hello and welcome to the Mega Game Report. My name is Peter Nixon. Mega Games, for those who aren't familiar, are RPG board game hybrids that frequently accommodate 20 players or more. And this is a podcast about them. This week on the pod, we are tackling the age-old mega game Watch the Skies with two different segments. The first is a recap of the Watch the Skies that took place at Shucks recently, and it was a ball, very good game. It also had a cameo from the Shut Up and Sit Down crew themselves, although we don't get into that. Although if you would like to hear more about that, we do tackle that in a previous episode. This time, we just recap the game overall and specifically highlight the Corp module, which was the module that I was control over. And the corporations were super fun. Shout out to all the corps that were there. <laughs> yeah, and shout out to Lyle Smith as well, who was my uh, co-control and was a much more organized person than I was. The second segment, I have Noah Crow on the pod to discuss his most recent Watch the Skies interpretation. He has been known to radically change the rules to Watch the Skies, so his variant might not sound too familiar to those who have run Watch the Skies before. But... He is a very talented game designer, it seems, and he comes up with a lot of really innovative game ideas. So we talk about that a little bit, and we also dive deep into specifically his recap of what the players thought of the game, which I think is not only like a useful skill to cultivate, but it's also his feedback was very representative of a good mega game overall and the feedback was not all good you will get a few negative reviews if not very vocal negative reviews which was certainly the case in his game but overall was a huge success he collected his data while he was giving the debrief which was an excellent way to do it and he also organized it via like a pie chart method so percentages so if you'd like to see the pie charts visualized i will include a link to that in the description of this episode But for now, I think we'll just kind of jump right into it. I apologize for the sound quality. Right now, I am actually recording on my phone because the drivers on my computer like to not work at very opportune moments, which is wonderful. And let's just get into it. Here's Evan Lewis and Clayton Hughes. So uh, I'm going to have these guys introduce themselves. So Evan Lewis, why don't you go ahead? All right. As you said, I'm Evan Lewis. I am one of the founders of Seattle Mega Games, along with Clayton Hughes, Tron Nielsen, Jesse Shepard, and Wit Yao. And most recently, I'm the lead designer and creator of Age of Flint, which we just ran at Chuck's for the first time ever. Clayton Hughes, let's hear from you. I'm Clayton Hughes uh, with Seattle Mega Games. I was most recently ran the game of Watch the Skies at Chuck's, and I helped out with Age of Flint as the most mindless job I could imagine, which was very good. <laughs> well, we'll get to it's that in what a sec. You, it's what you requested. Yeah, yeah. So about Watch This Guys, this is your guys' first time running the Corporations module, correct? That's true. We got that from our friends at Chicago Mega Games. Corporations are definitely... that. If you get a corp player that gets into it, they have a lot of fun, which is true with most <laughs> roles, to be honest. But the corporations definitely have a whole lot more flexibilities than the average player on the nation side of things. Yeah, I was really surprised from sort of the the role-playing buy-in from the corporation players, uh, because the countries are so obvious. It's like, oh, you're Russians, you know, put water in a vodka bottle and bring that, or caviar, or, you know, dress up in silly Russian hats, and the aliens just always knock it out of the park. And so I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, because everyone does a great job, but the corporations just didn't super call to me, but to see people show up with, you know, printed t-shirts and business cards and... Yeah, you know, we they... were like, what are they going to dress up with? And they just <laughs> knocked it. We were like, oh, like we didn't, I don't think we recognized the t-shirts till about two-thirds of the way through. And we were like, oh, wait. 
Yeah, shout yeah. out to those guys. Yeah, and the uh, the Applied Ventures crew. I, I should say that I was lucky enough to be Corp Control, which is like probably the most fun <laughs> of all the Control and Watch the Skies because you get the corporations coming up to you with their zany schemes. <laughs> My favorite part of the Corp module is these mega projects that these corporations can undertake, which can literally be anything. The only qualification is that it has to have like a nation back it, either financially or just kind of in general support. But other than that, like it can be anything, and it's generally always an emergent gameplay mechanic as well. Yeah, and you you did a uh, a pretty good job of inoculating me from those. Like I don't think I could name any except for the big the brain cell phone thing that like red herring. And I, I you know I might have liked to know a little bit more of that, but that's on me. You know when we we kind of gathered and meet to figure out what in the world is going on across the world. Oh yeah, um, it was great. They had some great uh, ideas. Yeah, like it, it seemed like it ran really smoothly. So I hope that was the case. <laughs> yeah, and shout out to Lyle. He was on the ball with the stock market stuff. Yeah, I will say that the key critique with Corp module, which is like a, a huge problem and hasn't really adequately been addressed, is that no matter what happens, the corps always have infinite money near the game. Like they always have more money than they can figure out what to do with at the end. Um, which really it's it's tough to figure out how to do that and we had some like we had a nation bust into a headquarters and arrest the ceos during the game and they still ended up with boatloads of cash at the end of the game i think everyone ends up with a lot of money at the end of the game just by nature of sort of you know how an economy building game works is it's like oh we we can stop investing in our economy now and look at all this extra cash we freed up we've noticed that a couple of times when we've tweaked with the alien game too over the years where like Turn four, a player's like, oh, I found an infinite money loop. And like by the end of the game, they're like, what do we do with 800 credits? And we're like, crap, uh, blow up Earth by sending the moon at it. Yeah, our very first game, China wanted to uh, build you know, sort of this subterranean palace to survive you know, the, the alien onslaught that was coming. The People's and Party said, Palace. Yeah, the, the People's Party <laughs> Palace. I think great name. I thought Bunker was in there. It was also the People's Party Bunker, but we decided yeah. it was also a palace. And, you know, they just gave us an armful of poker chips. And we said, okay, sure, you know, you, you've got the capital, you built it. <laughs> and I think that really helps people tell their stories. Like the, you know, the zany, crazy thing that they have been trying to get done. You yeah. Know, they're usually able to, to wheel and deal and make it happen. Yeah, last term madness almost always results in one or two control members having someone come up and go like, we want to build X. And you're like, okay, how much money do you have? And they're like... They just like it fills both your hands. It's something like thirty reserves and like twelve credits, and you're like, yes. And they're like, but I haven't told you my plan yet. You're like, it doesn't matter. You have enough money for it. What do you, What are you doing? Can I Can I give a shout out to uh, my favorite Corp Mega project before we move on? Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, Kraken Corp, which their their gimmick is that they are in the pocket of the, well, they're in the pocket of the Russian mob. They are the Russian mob, um, but they have a corporate headquarters in their corporation, right? <laughs> So they have a black market mechanic and stuff like that to get alien artifacts on the field. But all the games that I've experienced that have Kraken Cork in it, they have bought in the most. We were talking earlier about buy-in to the role-playing aspect. They really bought in, and it was no different with these guys. And their goal is to kind of, like, control everything and have their little tentacles and everything, right? So mm-hmm. the CEO comes up to me, and he's like, I want to make squid coin. And I'm like, what? What is squid coin? <laughs> and he's like, it's like Bitcoin, but squid coin. <laughs> <laughs> and so so we like it takes us like honestly, it takes us like five to ten minutes to kind of work out 
the gameplay aspect of how it would actually work and like the rewards for investing in squid coin and stuff like that and we settle on it what i think is a great mechanic where they invested a lot of money up front and they would get a return for every country who signed on to squid coin and every faction i should say so right out the gate they had they had like two other corporations and like one nation sign on so they were still in the hole but then they got a, a media corporation and i should have been more specific and said like government factions or corporations only not media so they got one of the media factions to buy into squidcoin as well and that and then every newspaper afterwards like had a little blurb about like hey invest in squidcoin <laughs> but i don't think it i don't think anyone <laughs> ever read it <laughs> They basically um, made a pyramid scheme. Yeah, oh my God. they made a Amazing. pyramid scheme. And I should say that they weren't the only ones getting payout. Everyone who had invested before also got a payout whenever someone else signed on. So it cost, <laughs> yeah, it cost two coin to sign on and you got a coin every, every faction that signed on after you. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, in my head I was doing like, you know, there's something like nine or so nations you could probably squirrel out like four or more factions out of that. Like 13 coin isn't so bad, but yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, no, I had, I had no idea that was happening. That's an awesome on the fly thing. I mean, actually one thing I'm kind of curious if I can ask a question of Clayton, like how did you like the fact that, you know, having corporations handle stuff we traditionally handled with control? It was fantastic. Honestly, I'm a big proponent of if there's some, management or some bookkeeping that needs to happen make the players do it which is why i like i like bonuses more than penalties because if you know the player is going to remember their bonus i mean i mean you know they might forget but they'll feel bad about it they kick themselves and then stop forgetting whereas if it's a penalty you know there's no incentive to remember oh yeah i was supposed to pay extra or whatever so this is sort of a farther extent of that right like the corporations are going to get paid by handling all the scientist bonus stuff. So in the, the science version of Watch the Skies we run, right? we have, they're rolling lots of dice. It works a lot like the escape games, uh, Escape from the Temple, and I think there's another one now, maybe two more. And so you're, you're rolling these dice trying to get sides. And so we would have a bidding game where they could buy extra dice to roll, and now you know, corporations handle that. And that, that freed up so much science, which was always a very control-heavy part of the game for us. It was fun for the corp to sell the dice, and it was fun for the players to buy the dice from the corpse. It was a win-win-win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's another place for story to happen, right? Mm -hmm. Where, right. Like, yeah. One nation hates one cor corporation hates one nation or whatever. And I, I will yeah. say that there there was a lot of corporate bloodthirstiness right going now. on at the corp table. Uh, and I'd like to give I'd like to give another example. Uh, the the corp that was in charge of selling the dice, the uh, the Akiri Safin, they mm -hmm. had these these quote unquote hero dice, which were sparkly black and were better than all the other dice even the level Props three to dice. Clayton for putting those sparkles on those yes. yeah i found i uh my daughter had some some sparkly nail polish so uh i went to town oh it was it was a great effect yeah so they would <laughs> they would flash the hero dice to the players and then when they sold them they would hand them the regular level three dice oh, <laughs> which is like no. a step down <laughs> oh that's amazing yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> That was one of the same corps where they, about mid-game, they had made just way too much money. So they wanted to do something to bring down the, the global terror level. So their idea was to invite an alien to do like an alien Beyonce concert for like a <laughs> world benefit concert. And it was just, it was like, it was like a really dumb idea. And they, they kind of knew it. 
<laughs> but I, I spent like the next 10 minutes talking to the appropriate control, getting everyone to sign off on a piece of paper to make sure it's all coordinated. And like the Olympics didn't let the aliens come. And it was just, <laughs> it ended up not really working out. <laughs> and I was talking to him at the end and they were like, yeah, we kind of thought that was a dumb idea. <laughs> I think we took the terror off the track anyway, because, uh, you know, that was a confusing time. We had one game where first turn, the first 10 minutes, China went on the record with the newspaper telling them that, no, it wasn't China, it was someone else, like, telling them that aliens was, exist. Might have been Brazil. And we were just like, what? <laughs> well, and they're like, yeah. From what I gather, it, the, that happens the, a lot, because people don't really, people either A, go for the gut shot, right, go for the gold, or B, they just kind of don't fathom the cost of going public. Yeah, um, like, well, we yeah. had a number of games where the aliens kept announcing themselves, and we were like, we need to come up with a reason to, like, disincentivize this for the aliens, because it only hurts the player, the nations, when the aliens are revealed. And so we were like, we need to come up with a way to convince aliens not to always announce themselves. And so I think we so came up with some did, rules. What did you guys come up with to do that? I think we made, like, warned them that it becomes harder to do some acquisitions and stuff because now people are on the watch out for aliens. Like, Yeah, yeah, some alien prices of things went up, basically. And it's um, cheaper for humanity to recruit new troops because people are all ready to fight them aliens. And so it was. it's mostly a lot of, like, it makes humanity way more prepared to fight them. Um, and, so they were, and so we haven't had that big of a problem, I think, since we instituted those changeovers. I think we also just, in our briefings, warned the aliens about it, too. We're like, you know, if all of humanity knows about you, that's an entire, that's an entire species that can rise against you. A lot of the, like, game shifts that, like, we've done to handle certain problems like that really come down to just the briefing materials and what you tell players about and warn them about before the game. Like, yeah. it has always impressed me how much just a sideline somewhere will completely put the kibosh on, like, problematic behavior you've had to deal with. Oh, yeah, players are so easy to manipulate and influence. Like, I'm, I'm surprised by just, like, these subtle little things I put in there and people just, like, will just, just glomp onto it. I feel like the shut up and sit down video kind of spoils that part of the game anyway, that, like, you know, alien reveal is a thing. I, I don't know. I'm not sure how I feel about that as a mechanic. Like, I love the media, and I love, you know, having giving them something to do, but... It feels a little forced because everyone knows that there's aliens there. That's why we're playing this game. Yeah. Do you think so? The alternative I'm just postulating here, the alternative that would just have the game open up with the aliens being known like all of a sudden, you think? Uh, I hadn't thought of that. That could work. I, I don't know. It, it is it is a good hook to get things started. Yeah, I, it might uh, it might also encourage like all of humanity to, to unite first turn type of thing as well. Yeah, that's part of the pro that's part of the thing. And also I really encourage anything you can make a secret that only some people know and others don't in a game, or anything you tell them to keep secret, just ratchets up the paranoia. And paranoia is your best friend in a mega game when people don't trust each other, because then you can convince them of anything. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> and so the fact that like turn one, the human nations know to watch what you say to the press especially about aliens, right? And so, like, they're always cagey about that. We're like, you know, Daily Earth News will run up and be like, so what about these weird lights in the skies? And they'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Or they come up with, you know, good political doublespeak about it. And it sort of gets them already in the mood to, like, lie to some people and withhold things. And that is, like, the exact behavior you want to encourage. 
So I finally took everyone's advice on how to give a survey, you know, to not let any, anyone leave the room or, or settle down yet, but just give it to them during the epilogue so that, you know, they're staying there for the epilogue. Anyways, they got to fill out the survey, right? So I actually got Smart a 100% response rate for, for the surveys. Wow. So everyone filled it out. I asked everyone to do their least favorite thing and their and their favorite thing. And maybe if they could give a suggestion, don't just write like your least favorite thing without saying, you know, what you thought might improve it. And after I got it all back, I made little pie charts. And I was like, okay, this is what most people didn't like. This is what people did like. Wow. I'll just go through it real quick. Interesting thing about this game, like the funny stories are coming, but I'll just I'll just say like, you know, it's it's the loudest person in the room that people often hear. And so you know, when I go through this, uh, obviously it's going to seem like I'm focusing on these one or two negative experiences because they're pretty interesting stories. But I don't want to give the impression that this was like some miserable game. <laughs> Most people had a great time, but I will focus on the uh, a couple of the negative stories because it seemed pretty polarized. Like people, it was a very like bimodal distribution. So I'll go ahead and start with the negative so we can end on a positive note. Yeah, before before so, you get into it, I'm always reminded of kind of like the, the business rule of like 80-20. Yeah, and then the other thing is like how artists always say like don't try to please everyone, just tries to please your core constituency a whole lot. I always find that mindset kind of healthy to keep in mind when you're being judged on your art. <laughs> Ever since I got into reading Mark Rosewater's articles, I always take like all his advice to heart. And I remember he had a, he had a pretty famous article where he was like, we actually don't want the average person to be moderately pleased. We would rather have half the people love it and half the people despise it because at least they'll talk about it. And if nobody, if nobody loves it, if everybody just likes it, it won't sell. At least it won't sell huge, like like the way you want it to. Those who aren't familiar, Mark Wiswater, Magic the Gathering designer, often mm -hmm. deemed responsible for kind of magic success throughout the years. Yeah, and yeah. someone I'm super jealous of because he just wrote like this this letter, this fan letter, like, I think this would be a really great idea for an expansion. And then a few years later, they were like, okay, let's do it. And he got to like just jump in there and make an expansion. And now he's like risen to the top of the organization. I'm like, man, how many people send in letters <laughs> like that nowadays saying like, oh, this would be an amazing expansion, you know? And just never hear back. <laughs> wow, I did not know that story. Yeah, we should say Mega Game is still a fertile realm if anyone just wants to write a letter and hop in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, there we go. Yeah. All right, so let's we'll start with um the negative feedback mm -hmm. uh, pie chart. So doing the countdown. So first one here. So number four, eight percent said that the War Map mini game was terrible. They said for like many assorted ways, and this was my second strikeout with like the war table minigame because the last watch the skies i did i also felt like it was the weak minigame as well peace broke out people didn't like the dice currency and by the end of the game like no one was going to it because they were just like ah we just turned in all our weapons and we don't even care if aliens are invading so i was like huh something's wrong with this this war table game so i changed it up and, and i guess i struck out again so i'm thinking i'll probably hand them over to my brother from now on or take his advice on how to make my next one this one was different well, yeah, from the so last... Let's say, um, so just for the context, in, in a normal Watch the Skies version, you know, you picture a big <laughs> war map, and you think that like these huge land battles and sea battles would 
play out often, and that actually kind of rarely happens, maybe happens once a game, twice a game. I find that most of the time, the war map is just where generals negotiate and play diplomacy, essentially, over whether or not to shoot down alien interceptors. Um, huh. So it's it it's kind of just an extension of your country's standing with aliens, with other countries. And the actual gameplay itself is, is kind of shallow. You know, it's like a dice roll, much mm -hmm. strategy to it. But you have modified the military game. Yeah, I, tr I tried something really unique, and um, I'll tell you, my brother's reaction was pretty funny to it. So basically, I moved it away from risk and more towards pandemic. And I had I had different colored units. They were very vague at first. You have to kind of interpret them. So I'm like, okay, these units represent disorder. This could be, this depends on what event caused it, and you, and you can kind of interpret it how you want. So I'm saying, like, disorder is... Criminals, rioters, protesters, people who aren't following the law, basically like the negative effects of that. And then these units represent unproductive elements. So this could be like people who are unemployed, people who are too injured from like a battle to be productive anymore, people who refuse to work, people who just immigrated and don't have like work, work visas yet. You have to interpret it from the event that happened. And then these units over here, this is these are lethal threats. So this could be anything from terrorists to nuclear radiation to uh, a superstorm from global warming. All right, so interpret it from the events that happened. Mm -hmm. And then this last one is negative publicity or recession or something like that. So now if you get too much of it, they pop just like in pandemic. And just like in pandemic, things affect other countries across the borders. And then... Disorder can spread to your country. Uh, migrants can leave their country looking for work in your country. That might cause like a brief moment of unproductivity. In any event, it was very much like pandemic and it was also very abstract or cerebral as my brother called it. And so there was a lot of visualizing and a lot of stuff that was in your head. I thought maybe this could solve some, some of the standard problems like peace breaking out because, you know, if you become friendly with other players, that's one thing. But what if, what if you're playing more like a co-op game like pandemic where a, a plague is never going to make friends with you. So you you really don't want to leave the war table. So even you could spend the whole game with no country ever being at war, but they still got to be at the quote war table because there's problems to take care of. So I just called it like the crisis map. And I said, all these crises are happening. And if you ignore them, they'll just spread and destroy your economy and raise the terror track. So I wasn't showing actual units. I was showing the effect of things. And when someone went to war, I was like, okay, we're not going to worry about territory gained or lost. You know, you're at war. Fine. You're at war. Tell me what sort of operation you want to do. Okay. And then I would just plop down a huge pile of negative modifier chips on the board. And they'd be like, what's that? And I'd be like, that's, that's the result of the war. Like infrastructure is damaged. People are crippled. There are less jobs because the factories have been destroyed. Like blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, what did I get out of it? I'm like, well, just like real life in, in the year 2030, you probably didn't get much out of it. So <laughs> like it probably hurt more than it helped. Like because I think, you know, the days of like Napoleon or, or Spartans is kind of over where you could just like rob resources and things like that. It's in this case, it's more about keeping the terror track down and, and trying to prevent all that like destruction and loss of life. And my brother and the other control members were just jizzing over this. They were like, oh, God, this is the most creative, interesting thing ever. But my brother said, although, Noah, the type of player that goes to the war table doesn't want abstract or cerebral. 
they're the ones who didn't want to be in the UN. They didn't want diplomacy. They didn't want creativity. They just wanted to crunch some numbers and roll some dice. And so my brother's opinion wow, was... Wow, that is way to go. <laughs> that is a great analysis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My brother was like, so yeah, you were preaching to the wrong choir there because like they just want to veg out with something simple or they wouldn't have chose what they thought was like a risk board. And I was like, man, you know what, Dan? I think you might be right there. So, you know, we might have to move it back towards that, as sad as it makes me. He's like, yeah, yeah. It, it turns all of us on in the control realm, but, like, the type of players that come to play the war map, that's not what they want. And I was like, all right, fair enough. That makes sense. So, And uh, so maybe there's, there's room for both in a, in a perfectly designed game. You know, have a crisis map that's visible to everyone and have a military map that's separate, perhaps. But you, you don't see the military, you only see the effects of the war. It could be really fun, yeah. Next, 10% said that turns were too fast and there wasn't enough team time to plan. And I'm like, all right, quick and easy fix. We'll just double the team time, whatever. <laughs> so 20% said they wanted all of the rules beforehand. I guess I sort of overcorrected. Last time for the first Watch the Skies game, I made these thick packets full of like like 80% flavor text put this whole huge like story to bring up to speed on your country and its geopolitics in 2030 as like a booklet for each different player and I spent forever on it and then I had those 10 people that ruin it for everyone else that show up the day of and they're like oh hey dude so uh how do you play this game and I'm like Hmm. in the middle of setting up and I've like already done a turn zero and i'm like are you serious did you read the rules i sent you and they'd be like oh you send rules and 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 i and i guess you know because of them they kind of ruined it for everyone else i was like oh you know what if i'm gonna spend all this time on it no one's gonna read it then i'm just gonna explain everything during turn zero on day one since everyone's making me re-explain it anyways and i think in the end like a lot of uh, mature players suffered because of that and you know i one of the things i loved the most when I played my first mega game and was like, this is all I want to do for the rest of my life was not getting the full rules. Cause I liked those like frantic frenzies of learning in real time. But you know, it, it doesn't seem like everybody likes that from what I'm seeing. It seems almost like mega games in America are moving away from that. And like this Aegon's conquest I played, they put not just my rules, but like every player's rules and controls rules and nothing was secret they put it all in like a google drive for everybody to see like a month ahead of time and there was no secrets so i was like huh this is the complete other side of the spectrum so i think maybe i'll meet with these players halfway by going back to the way i did it the first time yeah i mean I feel as, like I as far as a negative like that's a pretty positive negative because it means that you're developing a player base that is likely to come back a and b <laughs> once a more in-depth rule like I, I want more of those players right you know like <laughs> right so then we get to the number one thing that people didn't like about this event all right number one so and what's the percentage 35 percent. wow okay so that's yeah and it's it's gonna explain a lot about the crazy stuff that went on this is explaining <laughs> a lot 35 percent said some variation of this they didn't like the asymmetry, the emergent gameplay, role-playing, or how loose, freeform, or woo-woo the goals and playing were. 
Mm. And <laughs> this, I can only say, like, these are all cornerstones of mega games. So <laughs> these are all just like, well, that's that's mega game. Like, I guess you can go play a board game. I don't know. Like, why are you here? So I guess they they their expectations weren't managed or something. They didn't know what they were getting into. <laughs> wow, so, that is very interesting, huh? Can you can you read yeah. that one more time? They didn't like the uh, the emergent gameplay. Well, I'll read you. I'll I'll, I'll actually go through some. Uh, this one fellow, he uh, he destroyed game materials. So this guy on his survey, he wrote, "I play games to win. Period. I can't do that if mechanics change, make them consistent, and give me clear goals. My favorite part of the day was the leftover Halloween candy because <laughs> someone." <laughs> Someone brought Halloween candy, and I was like, damn, <laughs> like, that's the most negative review I've ever gotten. He was so belligerent. So, <laughs> now, to be fair, I've done teaching, I've been in management positions, and I never believe it's the student's fault. It's always the teacher's, it's always the boss's fault, the manager's fault, the leader's fault. It's mm-hmm. the general's fault, the president's fault. So, no matter what happened... I'm starting to wonder if uh, if I know I'm going to have a lot of new players, maybe I should give them like a 15-minute PowerPoint presentation on on how Mega Gaming works at the beginning of the game. There were small problems throughout all the mini games from the people who just didn't quite grasp how Mega Game worked. I mean, you could see like one in three players didn't like those things I listed, which are all core aspects of a of a Mega Game. So the biggest problem in the UN was that everyone seemed to hate the secretary general because because that player got to be the secretary general. They saw her as having like 10 percent more power than the other voting members. And they mostly wasted, you know, three hours trying to marginalize her ability to play that with with things as silly as like voting that she didn't get to like say anything, which basically takes someone out of the game. It's completely ridiculous. Now, my brother said, oh, you're too soft on her because I sat in there and watched and she was just as at fault for what happened as everyone else. And when he described how she was like vetoing everything, I said, well, look, basically, she doesn't know the yes, but rule where you where you don't have to say no. You just say yes, but, you know, and then but that's something control would know. That's something like a game master would have familiarity with. It's not her responsibility. But the good news is that by the end of the day, it had gotten squared away with a a combination of me giving more examples and my brother being in there. How did he put it? He said his mere presence was like a teacher being in the classroom and kids were acting like, you know, 50 percent more well behaved. But by the end of the day, it was like fixed. They were finally like rocking and rolling as a United Nations, even after I had to give them like a like a fake terrorist bomb threat at one point because (laughs) This this dang venue, like such bad luck, this guy came in and said, what, I rented this space for the exact same time as you. So I had to like be nice to him and give him our UN room because I felt sorry for him and all of his all of his event goers. Oh, no. And so I just came in and said like, uh, hey, everybody, there's been a bomb threat. Not a real bomb threat, but like an in-game <laughs> bomb threat. You have to clear the UN. And we, we went to like, the, we went out into the hallway, but but eventually... Like, it got fixed. You know, my brother and I worked together, and that game was fixed. And by the end of the, t- by the end of the game, they were rocking and rolling. Whereas the defense game just kind of quietly suffered. And at the end of the game, they weren't fixed because no one really knew there was a problem except for uh, 
their their control player who is who is too uh, kind of a person to fix it aggressively. But all I can say in conclusion of the negatives is that a lot of the players were first time mega gamers, and they didn't know that these are straight up like cornerstones of mega gaming. You're not really going to be able to avoid emergent gameplay or role playing unless I don't know maybe you play Aegon's Conquest. I, I know I keep mentioning it, and I do like Aegon's Conquest, but in my humble opinion. My mega games, at least, are not meant to be fair. They're not meant to be balanced. They have, you know, different roles and things like that. But other than that, like, mega games are not fair. Like, they're asymmetrical. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, On a side note, um, it was funny because when we were having a control debrief at a restaurant at the end, we kept saying, like, and those damn Mexicans! And, like, people on the other tables were like, what? And we were like, oh, we should probably change our, our nomenclature because <laughs> they, don't, they don't know what we're talking about. But... <laughs> But like, but like, uh, it just so happened that like three of the four problem players were on like Team Mexico. But we as Control all shared a common philosophy, which I recently learned has a name. Apparently, it's called Nordic gaming. Like Nordic LARPers are famous for it. Apparently, they say like play to lose in the sense of like I don't care if I lose. In fact, like if I'm gonna lose, I want. The players around me to be jealous of how cool my my character's death was, and so yeah, I'm literally making a a mini game for one of my coming mega games where your goal is to take a character that someone built and take them on an adventure where they die in the most interesting way you can get them to die, something worth like singing sonnets about, so something really cool like a glorious death, so people can get around this this paradigm of like i have to win let's go on to the the countdown for uh, the positive side so the positive eye chart okay so yeah. for the for number four we have a tie both of these are nine percent so nine mm. percent said they like everything <laughs> loved everything with ex- exclamation points which is you know i think at first i think it's a cop-out but i still learned something from the survey and that all the people that said that were from the science team. So in the same way that you have winners and losers like uh, or, or losing mini games and mini games that really killed it, science team, the science mini game killed it. And it's in large part because they had a great control member. I really like him. His name is Justin. He was a player in one of my previous games. I don't know. Maybe maybe I have good luck with science. The science team and the media team could not stop smiling and laughing the whole time. I feel like they probably met their future spouses there. They were like exchanging phone numbers, going to dinner afterwards, all these strangers. And the last game I played, or the last game, the last Watch the Skies I hosted, the SIGs, the special interest groups who were like a mix of scientists and media, their team was exactly the same. They splintered off and felt more connection with each other than their nations. And this time, too, the scientists, about halfway through the game, they stopped going back to their nation tables for team time. And I said, hey, guys, you got to go back to your nation teams. You're not allowed to keep playing. It's team time. And they're like, oh, we're not playing, but we're not going back to our nations. And I was like, well, I don't I mean, you have to. And they were like, well, we would like our characters to lock themselves into Area 52. And I was like, OK. And they were like, <laughs> and they were like, we're thinking about defecting from our nations. And I was like, really? And they were like yeah, we just want to stay here with the aliens and continue to talk. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, if I guess, I mean, I guess you could. So, but like, I, I got to say that this, this does happen fairly often where you get the, the science team that splinters off from the rest and then just kind of forms their own nation or army or weird science. Oh, really? Yeah. It, this, this isn't the first time. And, um, 
uh, just a lot of it has to do with kind of like the high mindedness of science. Like, oh, you know, who cares about these geopolitical things? I just want to build a freaking spaceship. <laughs> Maybe it also comes from goals. Like, I wonder if the average game, the goals given to scientists are more cooperative goals. And so it like psycho psychologically it makes the players more friendly with one another than say like uh, generals or foreign ministers who are told to kind of like be at odds with one another. But yeah, the media and the science team were just having a blast and completely abandoned, you know, their, their nations. So I got to ask though, so I, I really want to get into it then of what was your science game? Cause I know a lot of science games out there, they kind of struggle. So you could do three things in the science minigame. There were three things that you could spend money on and work together with other players. First thing is you could ask the alien to take you aside and like mind meld with you so that you could see into the future. And this would incapacitate you for a turn and force you to like leave Area 52, but it would tell you what nation would next be experiencing a horrible crisis because the alien could see the future. So you would leave and rant like a madman and try and warn people where where the next like uh, country would be that a bunch of negative modifiers was about to appear so they could nip it in the butt and like the United Nations and stuff like that. So what, the second the, thing you, did the uh, control play as the alien or was it kind of like an abstract alien or? Ah, uh, yeah. So this was a this was Watch the Skies. So this takes place like immediately after the first alien lands and there aren't any other aliens. So there's just a member of control playing the alien. Gotcha. Okay. The second thing you could do is try to communicate with the alien and you could upgrade communication. But at the beginning, you, you can only use a, a deck of tarot cards someone found in like the closet of Area 52. Hmm. So you have these like fun tarot card images that you show each other to try and communicate and later you can upgrade to like gestures as the alien learns what human gestures mean shrugs and things like that and then you can add in uh, images from google and then uh finally you can just talk to the alien and people i was kind of worried i had the idea about the tarot cards they loved it like they never wanted to stop communicating with tarot cards and the alien control said they figured out what he was, why he was on Earth, and everything about him on turn two. With tarot using cards. Using tarot cards. <laughs> yeah. I was uh, like, that is impressive. That is impressive. They figured the whole thing out on turn two. So that was interesting. And it didn't ruin the and game then, for them. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, I guess not. And then the last thing you could do is you could actually tech up. And the way you teched up is the, the alien would show you these pictures of uh, he would draw some out of a pile and he would show you a couple of pictures of huge like world wonders that he could build with you these like huge alien tech world wonders like a gigantic space station or a gigantic like lab under the ocean or something like that or like a huge monolith and there's no explanation to what they do and everyone and they cost massive amounts of money you couldn't build them without working with at least two other players and so players would could fight over who got the right to build it or they could all work together uh, you know things like that and once it was finally built then it pours out like rewards for who worked on it and whoever you know, spent the most money, gets the most rewards and things like that. Are the buildings, are they, are the effects of which predetermined or do the players come up with the effects? They're predetermined and the mystery is kind of the fun part because they see the picture and they try to guess. They're like, that looks like a genetic engineering lab, maybe. (laughs) So they make these, they make these guesses and they're not sure what they're building. Kind of like in uh, contact where they're like, "Uh, I think it's a 
teleportation. I think it's a portal. So they build it and then see what it does. And it could be malevolent, but luckily none of them were. The alien was friendly. Ah, so did you have like uh, malevolent buildings in mind just in case like the humans decided to be mean to him or? Nope. Okay. No, so the story the story behind the alien was that he was actually like a hyper evolved human, like the last human, like traveled back in time to avert disaster that like killed off the human race. <laughs> Turn two. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. They figured it out with tarot cards. And yeah, so the whole time he's just trying to help them like defeat the crises on the crises map. And that's it. And it stayed fun the whole game. Number three, so 19% said that they loved the head of state role and all the espionage they got to do. And the head of state role, the way I designed it, every turn, the heads of state would pretend to be taking a smoke break from the G20. So they'd be taking like a smoke break from the G20, and I had a control member pretending to be a Russian spy. And he would literally step out from behind this pillar at our venue and be like, over here. And he would share like news with them. He would share gossip, like top secret gossip. And he would say, there's a dilemma coming up. There's not enough workforce for most people's countries. So are you going to choose to invite a bunch of refugees into your country to fill that gap? Or should we make an artificial intelligence and a bunch of robots to like replace all the workers because our birth rate is not keeping up with our death rate? So he would give them some sort of like moral dilemma and they need to pass a policy. And he would urge them to pass like policy A or policy B. And if they agreed with him, they'd, they'd become allied with Russia. And if they disagreed with them, they'd grow closer to America. But every turn you had like this really hard moral dilemma and you needed to pass policies for your country. And after they picked a policy, they would get like some cool creative present for it, some creative power for passing that policy. And then, you know, if there was time left over, they could make some espionage mission. And huh. they loved it. Like, they all just really loved it. They felt important. They felt like making a policy choice for the people of their nation was, was like, uh, significant and special. I kind of wanted to do that because what I liked most about Watch the Skies when I played was that I had the most fun when I committed to the reality of the role. And I think I told you in that first podcast that, like, when everyone was like, hey, we're getting on an arc to abandon the Earth. Do you want to come? And I was like, no, I'm the president of Russia. Like, I have to go down with the ship. Uh, if, if it gets nuked, I get nuked with it. These are my people. I'm not going to abandon my people. So if you if you really, like, let yourself fall into the reality, you'll get more out of the game. And I think maybe that's what they did. They really liked the creativity of it and things like that. Wow, that's really interesting. That sounds like an incredible amount of pre-planning. So props to that. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, you know, when they said I liked the emergent gameplay and, and, and the creativity, I was like, oh, good. So there are some mega gamers here, you know. <laughs> so then number two, number two was 22 percent said they loved how the interconnection of the minigames forced collaboration, communication and teamwork. And I'd say, great. <laughs> so I was, I was pretty proud of that because I worked forever on that. Um so in the crisis map, defense ministers had like a sheet of powers, but people were getting stickers. We use stickers for powers. You could put them on your sheet or you could give them to other people and and they some stickers wouldn't apply to you. And you'd be like, this is weird. This is useless. And I'd be like, talk to your teammates. So 
But the stickers were fun otherwise. Like uh, it was interesting because if you could get a policy sticker and put it on a on a tech sheet, you could say like, well, I'm going to like abandon this policy and say that that gives me this tech. Or you say like, I'm going to I'm going to forbid this tech. You know, I'm going to call it Haram and that should give me more political capital. So I should be able to take this tech sticker and put it on my policy sheet. And I'd be like, yes, exactly. Good. Or the alien would give you something and you'd be like, I know he wants this for peace, but I'm going to. I'm going to reverse engineer it and make a weapon out of it and give that sticker to the war table. So, wow, okay, so these, can... these stickers, they were very – describe the sticker – like what, what was physically on the sticker because it sounds like it was really loose and kind of like what the tech referred to. Is that correct? Well, yeah. So like every every mini game except the UN I think could get a sticker that said like you have earned like this technology, weapon, or policy – but if you can convince control that it makes sense, it it's totally easy to like convert one to the other. So if you converted like a science to a policy, that represented you being like fundamentalist and saying, like, we don't use this technology because it's against God. Like, no stem cell research. And that gave you like political capital. Or you could take hypersonic uh let's see, the alien gave a technology through one of the wonders of the world that was like uh hypersonic engines that he wanted people to use in like rescue planes and you could say like i'm gonna attach it to my to a missile and like make a hypersonic missile he gave uh he gave like (laughs) yeah you could make the space station project but you could give it to your defense minister and he could turn it into an orbital platform that like shot lasers and launched missiles so you could use it so so the way these stickers worked uh would Mm -hmm. you you would physically have to give them the sticker right and then you would no longer have the sticker that's how that would work yeah okay yeah. yeah, so you could either either weapon or policy or what was the third option? Technology. Technology. Very interesting. That is that is a neat mechanic. That's very fun. Immersion gameplay and a uh, forced decision. Yeah. yeah and the stickers the had fun fun flavor text on it so you would know where they got them. So like when when the head of state got like an economic boost, it would have some flavor text on it that said like decided to lay off a million workers in favor of like robots. So just to just to remind you where it originally came from for fun, you know, for flavor text. <laughs> the last example I'll give is that the default difficulty at the uh, at the military table was seven. So you had to roll a seven with some dice as a default to defeat terrorists or like stop a, a or, or deliver aid in like a superstorm or something like that. Okay. So but most you know, people about start 50-50 chances roughly. Well, so most people start with a D4. Oh, okay then. <laughs> and the and the default difficulty is a 7. And people were just going like, "What? What? I don't you can't roll a 7." And it was like and and I guess control should have helped them more. He was he was a first timer at control. He had only been a player before, but you know, it was like two or three turns before someone was like, can I roll with another person? Can we roll 2d4? Or like, can I can I upgrade my d4 somehow? Or like before, it was a couple of turns before they even asked questions. So control could have helped with that, but it's also, you know, mega gaming experience. We'll get to the, the number one thing. 25%. The number one thing that they liked was the breaking news. I had two per turn in my first Watch the Skies. This one I only had like one every other turn and I regret it. I think it was my biggest mistake. I shouldn't have pulled back on it. So I should have kept it high because it is people's like favorite part. Their favorite part was when the media or myself would come up, grab a mic and say like in the middle of a turn, 
everybody, blah, blah, blah happened. There's going to be a press conference about it. There'd be zombies or doomsday cults or Cthulhu monsters or a nuclear launch or something like that. So they loved like a narrative. Um, so like, I think my biggest mistake was I, I kind of toyed with this idea of privatizing these things. I, I told the media that, you know, if somebody paid them a lot of money for like subscriptions that they could just, they could give the front page to like just those people so that they could get, you know, a good income going and that if people didn't pay to see it, they wouldn't get to see the front page or something like that. And I'm just totally scrapping the idea because it's too fun. It's too popular. It's people are too happy to see like a front page or a press conference or to hear things. So totally going back to like two events per turn. And that's it for the pod this week. Be sure to follow Seattle Mega Games on Facebook if you're interested in attending one of their events in the future. They frequently do Watch the Skies at PAX and other events, but more importantly, they are also starting to do their own original content, such as Evan Lewis's Age of Flint design, which is a fantastic design that we actually dedicated a whole podcast to in the previous episode. So if any of that appeals to you, I highly suggest following them and messaging them. Noah Crow and his brother Ben have a bunch of designs in the works that all sound super cool, especially a upcoming superhero mega game that is awfully mysterious right now. It's definitely in the works, but they are in the playtesting phase. So if superheroes is your thing, I definitely recommend checking out a playtest of that. You can reach out to both Noah and Daniel via Facebook. And if you'd like to reach out to the pod, you can email in at megagamereport at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing you. I will totally respond. And with all that out of the way, this is the Mega Game Report signing out.